Summer is officially here, and with it comes our annual With Good Reason summer reading list. We've got mothers and daughters. I can feel the love that just pours through the book. Spiritual seekers. Anybody who wonders about the sacred, who asks, how can I be spiritual in this seemingly modern secular society, might want to pick up this book. And so much in between. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, we're filling your bookshelves. Archana Pathak says she mainly reads from three categories— books related to her work, oldies she loves to reread, and new stuff written by people she cares about. Pathak is a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, and she's here to recommend one book from each of her favorite categories. Archana, the first book you're recommending really isn't a new one at all. This is a speech that was actually written but never given— Back in 1936? Yes, it is. Um, The first book I'm recommending is Annihilation of Caste by B.R. Ambedkar. And it's a tough read because as a South Asian Hindu American um, of the Savarna castes, of the higher castes, it forces me to really examine my own caste privilege and think about the ways in which that has shaped my politic as a Hindu, uh, as an Indian woman, as a brown person in the United States. This man was supposed to deliver this speech at a conference of the Society for the Breakup of the Caste System, but it was considered too inflammatory to be delivered even to that group. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that, you know, Ambedkar had a vision for India that was so intertwined with both the eradication of colonialism, but understanding that the eradication of colonialism wasn't the only root of oppressive violence in that society. And so he he had a vision that explored and examined the ways in which Indian society itself was organized around an oppressive system, that of the caste system. And he he was quite vocal about an imagining of India and a critique of India that that shook up even the most liberal of its of its population. Um, and I think part of it was, complicated because Gandhi, who was also working so hard towards the eradication of colonialism, was leaning into the Hindu tenets as ways of enforcing revolution and resistance, right? So Ambedkar coming in and saying that very doctrine itself has its own poison, that that shook the society up. So Ambedkar was actually criticizing Hinduism itself, which was just a bridge too far for many. There's really no way to separate out caste from Hinduism, and we have to think about that. Caste has been used as a structure of oppressive violence in India. And sure, I can say, and I do say, not my Hinduism. As soon as we start doing that, we got to start looking at how that liberal bent is blinding us to the fact that a lot of systems, there is no system that I can think of that hasn't been weaponized for violence, right? If I just accept it blindly, then I am complicit in its violence. And Gandhi noted that while the elimination of the caste system is the best way forward, he defended Hinduism and he said, you know, let's not look at religions by their worst adherents. Let's look at all the world's religions by their most and best adherents, right? You know, and this is the thing, like, you know, I was raised in a family of freedom fighters, right? Both my grandfathers met and fought with Gandhiji. My sense of social justice in the United States is rooted in in the trainings of Satyagraha. Like, that's what I read to learn how to be a justice warrior in the U.S., right? So this book makes me grapple. I would like to say that we could take the worst of a religion and put it off in a little box and tie it up and put it away. Um, But while it's still in play, I don't think we can. What I realized was that I am a more faithful Hindu because of my ability to grapple with and read Ambedkar. He helps me see why I do and don't choose my religious tenets. So if I can read about my spiritual journey from its most violent place, 
and figure out how I live in it, then there's a there's a solidity to that. Another book that you're recommending is a novel, and this one is set in Oakland, California. Tell me about that. Yes. This is Mistress of Spices by Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni. And I love all of Devakaruni's work. She's a brilliant writer, but Mistress of Spices holds a special place in my heart. It is one of the most sensual novels I've ever read. Like, I experience it with all five of my senses. It's the story about a woman who runs a spice shop in Oakland, California. And without giving too much away, um, many members of the South Asian diasporic community come to her spice shop. And while they they shop for the spices they need to do their cooking, they also share their lives with her. And just the description of the spices, the the explanation of the scents and the sounds and the tastes. And I it just it just transports me back to so many family kitchens um, when we cooked and ate together. And there's so much mysticism and magic also involved, where she is using spices individually to touch and heal a variety of people who come in. Yeah. And I and I think the thing that's most poignant for me about that book is I, I didn't know it at the time, but I now realize it. My family used spices as ways to heal me as a child who walked in multiple worlds. It, it may not always have felt that way to me as a kid because it was just confusing and like, am I Indian? Am I American? You know, I came to this country in the early 1970s. The South Asian population wasn't um, as strong or as visible at the time. And so I felt very alone. Um, but there were ways in which the smells and the touches and the tastes and the scents and, and all of that did envelop me. So at least when I came home, that was steady and clear and consistent. Um, and it, 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 I think we all have to get to adulthood to realize how much those experiences of our childhood saved us. What do you mean my parents use spices? Do you mean that because they cooked with traditional spices and that was always the backdrop of family meals, that that enveloped me in my culture? Or do you mean they were deliberately using certain spices to evoke something in you? Both and, right? So we definitely cooked with yeah. traditional foods, you know, cooked traditional foods with traditional spices, but we used spices in the ways that they are used in traditional, like Ayurvedic, for example, techniques. So like everyone is all about their golden milk lattes these days, but I've been drinking golden milk lattes since I was a kid, right? That's actually a, <laughs> right. a pretty uh, ancient um, remedy for for coughs and and sore throats. And so, you know, if we said that we had a cough or our throat hurt, then my mom made us haldi milk. Uh, haldi is turmeric, um, and you know, maybe didn't love the taste of it, but was a saucer full and it was like, well, drink it down while it's, you know, while it's hot and then just go to bed, you'll feel better. Or if it was hot outside, you know, remembering my parents um, using a particular kind of metal bowl with ghee on it and rubbing the soles of my feet to, to pull the heat down to, to cool my body off, right? Like we lived that life. What is the last book that you want to share with us? That's a great question. I've got to pick one, huh? <laughs> it's hard. I, you know, reading has been my escape my whole life. I'm always reading a lot of books at once. So there's two that I'm like smack dab in the middle of. One is uh, Julietta Singh's The Breaks. Um, Julietta Singh is a local Richmond author, um, and the book The Breaks is a is a letter to her to her child. And um, I mean, I think it's exquisite for any mother and child to read that book. But it's just even more poignant because I can hear her voice and see their faces. And it, it grapples with this question of being brown and finding our ways through the world. It's maybe a letter I wish an adult had written for me as a young brown child in this country, trying to figure out what that meant. What does she say to her daughter? So much. <laughs> So much, right? She she talks about helping her daughter find her way in the midst of like of a backdrop of a society that is always going to try and pigeonhole her. 
I can feel the love that just pours through the book. Um, I think that's what's so incredible for me. I think she's showing her child the utter strength and beauty of vulnerability. You know, don't don't let it don't let the world steal that from you. Any guilty pleasures also on your night table? So look, since I was a kid, it's been pretty much anything by Nora Roberts. <laughs> and she writes in trilogies, which I love. So it's like you get to know these characters and they hang out for like three books. So there's like a good relationship soap opera investment for me. I get to know these characters and kind of fall for them. And her books are very familial and relational. So she has these big, beautiful families with all these like intergenerational complexities and everyone loves each other a lot. And it's just really feel good. <laughs> it is really my kind of like, you know, lifetime or hallmark kind of channel version of book reading. Actually, I've never read Nora Roberts, and I think I might just give it a shot. Archinopathic, thank you for sharing your book interests with me and with good reason. Thank you so much for asking me. It's wonderful to be able to talk about the joy that books bring me and to share with you some of my, my personal favorites. Archinopathic is a professor of gender, sexuality, and women's studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. In 1970, the Coretta Scott King Award joined the Caldecott and Newbery Medals as one of the greatest honors given to children's and young adult books. Each year, the award recognizes outstanding books that reflect the African-American experience. Rosalie Kaya is a professor of English at Norfolk State University. She's worked with the Coretta Scott King Award and shares some of her favorite past winners. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I like all of these books. I really do. Um, there's a book by Clara Hartfield, and the title of that book is A Few Red Drops. This was awarded the Coretta Scott King Book Award in 2019. What age group is that for? This one I would do for YA. So this book, A Few Red Drops, is about the Chicago race riots of 1919. You know, in the 1919 Chicago race riot, 38 people died, more than 500 were wounded, two-thirds of the casualties were black, a third were white, and this was touched off by the stoning death of one young black man who was rafting with friends on the so-called black part of the beach nearby when they drifted onto the so-called white part of the beach. Would you tell me about that beach and that young man? Well, I, I did my doctorate um, at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. This part of uh, the country where this happened where the little boy was stoned, that was uh, up around Lake Michigan. And as you said, he and a few of his friends drifted off into the white section of the beach. And they were attacked by a mob of white men. And, of course, uh, when the, the surviving little boys got back to their home, to their community, and they talked about it, and that's when everything just went crazy, went wild. The author, Clara Hartfield, does extensive research. This book is, as we say in the vernacular, the bomb. She, <laughs> right. she has illustrations. She has um, a picture of the mayor of that city where this happened. It's just an awesome, awesome book. As you can see, I'm just into it. <laughs> I love it. I use it in my class. And the students, you know, get really wrapped up in it because people don't know why this a stone throw would ration off something like this. There's another popular book that won the Coretta Scott King Award fairly recently called The Watsons Go to Birmingham. That was roughly based on an historical incident, but it's a fictionalized account of it. Tell me why you love this book. I love that book because I love the author. <laughs> um, <laughs> the reason I like his, uh, his writing is because it's light, but it's heavy. Right. In other words, he has humor there, 
but he gets to the point. And the protagonists in The Watsons Go to Birmingham, as you said, it's based on, but it's not about the Birmingham March and that kind of thing. The protagonist is a preteen, I guess, going on teenage, and um, he's a little bit much for his family in terms of his behavior. So they feel that the way we can calm him down is send him, as we say in the vernacular, down the country. So <laughs> when you live up north and you send somebody down the country to your grandma, that means that, you know, when you come back, you're going to be all right. And so, <laughs> so they, they take this trip down the country, a car trip down the country, and as they're moving further from up north to down the country, they begin to see how things change, how they can't stop and have a meal, how they can't eat at a certain place, where they can't use the toilets at a certain place. Mm. And so when they actually get to Grandma's house, this is when things begin to start. And you can kind of like see this teenage boy come and do his thing, you know, where he was a big shot when he was at up north. And now he's seeing how, you know, you have your place and you must be aware that this is your place. Isn't that sad that you have to have your place? Right. You know, <laughs> that is just so sad. Um, and the gist of the story is that his whole behavior has changed by spending that summer in Birmingham. So what Christopher Paul Curtis does is to put some sprinklings of the Birmingham movement in the book, but it is not about the movement. We have time for one last recommendation by you, and I know that you wanted to bring up for younger readers a book written by a friend of mine, Margot Lee Shetterly. I love it. I love it. And this is the book that she wrote for young people after yes. she wrote her adult book, Hidden Figures. Yes. So this one is like for ages four through eight. And this is a well, well-documented book as well as, you know, for children. I think she did a wonderful job. Young children, especially young little girls, need to know that they matter and that they can do things. And, yeah. and we need to start at that point. These four women helped NASA launch into the future. And maybe little girls didn't know anything about this. It's an awesome read, and I would certainly put this at top of one of my list as well. And before I let you go, what are you reading right now? Oh, well, now I'm reading the 1619 Project. Right? <laughs> yes, uh, and I'm loving it. I'm loving it. And it's just a mixture. It's not just about that. It's There's poetry. There are, of course, essays. 1619 Project. Love, love, love. Rosalie Kaya, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. You're quite welcome. Thank you for having me. Rosalie Kaya is a professor of English at Norfolk State University. Our next guest brings us four books about cross-cultural identity and religion in America— Kyle Garten Gundling is a professor of English at Christopher Newport University. The first one that I think we can talk about is a book called American Dervish by Ayad Akhtar. It's one of my personal favorites that I've read in probably the last five years. And tell me about Ayad Akhtar. Who's he, the author? So Ayad Akhtar is primarily known as a playwright. He wrote a play called Disgraced that was very successful a few years ago. American Dervish is his first novel. So there was a lot of people wondering, how is he going to do with his fiction debut? Let me tell you, he knocks it out of the park. This is a wonderful novel. It's an intimate portrait of a young immigrant from Pakistan whose family lives in a Milwaukee suburb in the 1990s. And I find it to be a very moving coming-of-age story about him trying to discover his place in the world, his relation to his family, his culture, and his faith. So anybody who wonders about the sacred, who asks, how can I be spiritual in this seemingly modern secular society, might want to pick up this book. It's a really fascinating reflection that has both culturally specific and, I think, transcultural resonances. And it strikes me that it's such an easy 
glimpse into yet another community trying to make it in America and dealing with how does my culture fit in? That's right. And in this book, I think we see a lot of assimilation going on where the main character's parents are very secularized. They're in the health professions and religion is not a big part of their lives. It's actually through when the main character's mother has a friend who moves in with them. She is a Sufi Muslim who then becomes a kind of mentor figure to the main character, teaches him about the Quran, about the history of Muslim doctrine, and really gets him interested in the faith. And so it's actually outside the nuclear family that that spiritual influence comes in. The intertwining of faith and family relations is a very key aspect of this. I wonder if there are any passages that you particularly like that you might want to share with us to give us a feel for this writer? Sure. So there's a passage early on in the book where Hayat, the main character, is just starting to read Mina's copy of the Quran. So here we go. Here's the quote. The book's new binding cracked as I opened it. Inside, each page was like a work of art, covered on the left with a block of black Arabic text enclosed in a golden frame. On the right was the English translation. As I turned the thick pages, heavy like vellum, they released the crisp, pleasing odor of new paper. I looked down at the page. In the lamplight, the black letters pulsed against the yellow-white page." So in this passage, Hyatt is completely overcome with the beauty of the Quran, not because of the substance of its words, but because of the majesty of the physical presence of the book. And whether we're talking about a sacred text or not, I think that there may be some relatable aspect to this passage about just what it feels like to sit down with a really good book in your hands, to smell that pleasing book odor. All these physical experiences that I think have been kind of on the decline nowadays with the rise of electronic reading, I think this book is a very valuable way of kind of recovering some of those experiences. And that's one of the things that really exemplifies the kind of the beauty of the writing and also the the relatability of the love of literature more broadly. You're also recommending a lighter read that is a detective series about a former Buddhist monk who becomes a police officer in Los Angeles and then a sort of Sherlock Holmes detective there. Tell me about this book. What's the name? That's right. So this book is called The First Rule of Ten. And in this case, 10 isn't just a number. It's actually the main character's nickname. So the main character is named Tenzing Norbu. And it's a five-book series. In each book, he kind of comes up with these rules for himself where he has these intuitions that he disregards at the beginning of the book, and then it gets him into trouble. And then by the end of the book, he comes away with some kind of life lesson. And so in this case, the first rule of 10 turns out to be something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing, if you have a hunch that something doesn't feel right, don't ignore the hunch. You should acknowledge and investigate before something goes wrong later. To get to that lesson, he goes through a really sprawling plot that involves so many different things. It involves uh, mysterious poisonings. It involves trees being gradually killed. It involves a kind of intellectual property con job where there's a, a, a shady lawyer who tries to convince old artists to sue record companies for more uh, royalty money. And there's an Italian gangster. There's an Irish gangster. It gets a bit stereotypical, which I object to, but there's a lot of different um, kind of traditionally detective plot elements in the book that end up getting reworked through this kind of Buddhist perspective because the main character is a former Buddhist monk and he uses Buddhist meditation to help him think and help him solve his crimes. You actually study Buddhism, or you have. Do you think he gets it right in this series, the author? <sighs> so that's a very tough question. I think for the most part, he does. It's a co-authored team, and the authors are not Tibetans themselves, but they've clearly done a lot of study of Buddhism. They've clearly consulted with a lot of people. They want to represent this character with dignity. They want to represent his religion fairly. Um, I think that the details about Tibetan philosophy and Tibetan art, they get pretty well. 
if there is one way that you might quibble with them, I just think it's the sheer fact that they use Tibetan Buddhism as a bit of a gimmick in the book, and the main character has some minor telepathic powers that he uses from time to time. So it's almost like turning him into a kind of minor Tibetanish superhero, which is a little bit weird and kind of stereotyping. Um, so that's, I think, what the main complaint would be. But they do try to represent the religion well, and they end up working it into a fairly good suspenseful mystery plot. You've also got some nonfiction works that you are interested in. What are the nonfiction books that you'd like to share as summer reading? So one of them is a book called So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijoma Oluo. This is a book that kind of takes a conversational approach, as the title would indicate, to talking about racial issues in the United States. And the reason that I wanted to highlight this book is that it came out in 2018, during a time when the Black Lives Matter movement was growing, was becoming more recognizable, and it was a very successful book at the time. But then a couple years later in 2020, when things really blew up in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd, I think this book got somewhat overshadowed by some other books like The 1619 Project and How to Be an Anti-Racist and White Fragility. Uh, but And those are great books too. But I think what is really noteworthy about Oluo's book, So You Want to Talk About Race, is that it takes a lot of pretty sophisticated concepts and makes them very clear and easy to understand, taking a conversational approach to walk the reader through these various racially fraught topics. And then speaking of having conversations about difficult topics, the other nonfiction book that I'm especially interested in is called Talking Across the Divide, How to Communicate with People You Disagree With and Maybe Even Change the World. And the author of that book is Justin Lee. Now, Justin Lee is a gay Christian whose career has been spent trying to persuade more anti-gay Christians to change their mind and be more LGBTQ plus inclusive in their theology and in their practices. But based on that specific issue, he wants to kind of draw broader lessons for his readers on how to talk to people you disagree with, how to have conversations about difficult issues while remaining respectful, how to forge relationships with people, and how to figure out what is it that you want to accomplish in these conversations? Do you want the person that you're talking to to do something specific, to think something specific? And how can you kind of overcome some of the more common barriers that people have to opening up their minds to different ideas? These couldn't come at a better time for us. Great summer reading choices. Kyle, thank you so much for sharing your books with me on With Good Reason. Thank you very much. Kyle Garden-Gundling is a professor of English at Christopher Newport University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Today we're sharing summer reading book recommendations. My next guest is Cheryl Mango. She's a history professor at Virginia State University and she's adding three very different nonfiction books to our stacks. Cheryl, the first one is about filmmaker Spike Lee. What did you love about this one? Well, Spike Lee's uh, director's inspiration came to mind. I think that Spike Lee is often overlooked. He does not get the respect that he deserves for his body of work. So this book, this highly anticipated book, a director's inspiration, which is coming out in September. Uh, he's going around his studio and he has um, artifacts from his movies. He's showing how these artifacts basically inspired uh, his films. They always tackle very tough topics. He never runs away from any tough topic. Uh, for example, his Malcolm X movie, uh, is one of his most highly acclaimed works. However, it's on a very controversial figure, Malcolm X. But, uh, and he got Denzel Washington, a mainstream actor, to play Malcolm X. And it, it sparked a whole cultural movement. As a matter of fact, I'm a PhD in African-American history uh, because of that film, when I saw that film when I was a child. And I think that um, so many Black people were inspired by that Malcolm X film. 
So I think with uh, Spike Lee bringing that to the forefront, it really catapulted him to a certain level of realness in the Black community because he has dared to venture into these very controversial themes and topics uh, through his various movies and works. Was Malcolm X one of the first Spike Lee films you saw, or do you go back even farther? I'll go back further. Do the Right Thing um, is uh, one of the first uh, Spike Lee films that I saw. And it's so interesting that even now, I have to go back and review Spike Lee films. Uh, And I I realized that I did not, the messages were so deep that I'm still trying to understand many of the messages. How about the next book you have to recommend to us? Being Human Being, Transforming the Race Discourse by Dr. Malefi Kite Asante and Na Dove. Tell me about that. This is a fairly recent book on race and transcending race. Right. I think what struck me about this book was the author and the topic. Dr. Malefi Kite Asante is uh, the pioneer, the father of Afrocentricity which is a theory as well as practice. So in terms of what they named their children, in terms of uh, what languages they would prefer to speak, he really sparked this whole Afrocentric movement. However, this book is particularly interesting that at nearing 80 years old to come up with a book that talks about transforming the race discourse and basically where he talks about eliminating racial Uh, language altogether. This is quite interesting that someone who uh, is responsible for sparking and, uh, you know, generating this racial pride, as we just mentioned, having us to re-envision a world where race and racism does not exist. How do we move beyond a world that has been filled with race and racism basically driving uh, much of the politics? So in Being Human Beings, Transforming the Race Discourse, how can he be proposing that we be colorblind, that we not talk about race, when, as you say, so much of the discourse that exists is about race? Right. And and, and he helped to fuel that as well. Right. Even myself, um, being a doctor of philosophy of African-American history, in African history, working at an HBCU, while simultaneously being a Black woman, oftentimes those three uh, realities intersect with each other. And they can become very overwhelming because it seems like it's no escape. It's like, is this, is am I doomed to uh, deal with the world of race and racism forever? Because it seems like it's, it's, it's no, so no one has presented solutions to how to deal with racism, cogent, concise solutions, and even theoretical solutions to how do we move to a world beyond racism. And so he mentions that he is influenced by his student, Ibrahim Kendi's, in his uh, anti-racist books, How to Be an Anti-Racist, finding Black scholars trying to look for a world beyond racism is not just critical to the community. It's not just critical to the nation, but it's also critical to the scholars themselves because it can become very taxing and very burdensome to have to analyze an issue, to see people suffering from an issue, as well as to live the issue without saying, wait a minute, I have to envision a world beyond these type of issues. And before we go, there's another book you've also recommended we might want to take a look at this summer on plagiarism. Why so? And what is that book? Yes, Plagiarism in Higher Education, Tackling Tough Topics in Academic Integrity by Sarah Elaine Eaton. Uh, And the reason why this book is so significant is because I don't think we really fully understand how to conceptualize plagiarism. And the reason why this book was so important to me uh, is because I have experienced academic theft as a scholar, as a, from sen- other senior researchers. And it's a very difficult situation because, as she mentions, I think it's in chapter 12 of her book, 
as she mentions, when you have cases of, of senior level professionals who plagiarize, it's a big attempt to basically cover it up. People want to throw a rug over it. Uh, they want to avoid the controversy with it because it brings bad press to the institution. It brings bad, bad press to the scholar. And it's very difficult to accuse somebody of stealing anyway. It's just a hard... And then also the person, when you have suffered academic death, it's very difficult uh, because you don't know if you expose the actors, um, will you suffer some type of retribution for it? Right. I think that the whole, I don't think that our senior level administrators and senior researchers and faculty is no board to hold faculty accountable and senior researchers accountable who plagiarize. Of course, if something is copywritten, you know, you can deal with some intellectual property issues there. But the the punishment is not that severe. Of course, they can lose their reputation, but it takes a lot to uh, prove that someone has stolen your information. Um, and so it's a very personal subject for me because now I'm very paranoid in the information that I share. And this is problematic for me as a scholar because I'm supposed to be able to express my ideas. But it's a very serious issue. It's not discussed enough. And I hope that that is brought to the forefront more. Well, Cheryl Mango, three fascinating books. Thank you so much for sharing them with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you so much. Cheryl Mango is a professor of history at Virginia State University. My next guest is a biology professor who happily spends most of his summers reading a book called Freshwater Algae of North America. It's fascinating, really. But if that's not your thing, Bruce Cahoon also has two great audiobooks to recommend. Bruce Cahoon is a biology professor at the University of Virginia College at Wise. Um, I, I spend quite a bit of time with the scientific literature during the summer. In fact, that's, that's most of my reading. And um, so far this summer, I have, without a doubt, <laughs> spent more time with a book called Freshwater Algae of North America uh, than any other resource. Is it reading that delights you or that you feel compelled to do? It's both. It, you know, when you're a scientist, my work is also kind of like a hobby. Right. Um, and I get to explore. And um, so I'm, I'm reading, and, and even though it's part of my work, it's a delight, you know, to get to learn something new and get to explore things. This book, it, it tells you about all the major groups of algae that you're going to find in streams and ponds and lakes uh, throughout North America. And uh, so when we find something, when my students and I find something, uh, when we're exploring around in Southwest Virginia, this is what we're going to use to try to figure out what it is. Tell me something about algae that would be interesting to me or that I should know. Well, they, they are, of course, primary producers, meaning they're at the very bottom of the food chain. And without them, there's essentially nothing. Um, you, you have to have these small organisms that are going to produce energy. They're going to collect sunlight um, through photosynthesis. They're going to be consumed by smaller animals and bigger animals and so on. And you know, without them, there's nothing. Um, we're all running on stored sunlight. They are the basis of life as we know it. And most of them are just beautiful, but we can't see them because they're microscopic. So without the aid of a microscope, you would never even know that they're there. And people didn't even know they existed for most of, you know, human history. So I know you're enjoying Freshwater Algae of North America. I understand you also like audiobooks. Have you heard anything recently that you could recommend to others? Oh, sure. Um, when I'm relaxing, which is essentially when I'm driving or when I'm running or, you know, when I'm in my wood shop and just listening to something while I'm making something, um, I do listen to audiobooks and they tend to be pretty light. Uh, one that I've really enjoyed lately was uh, Dave Grohl's The Storyteller. And um, Dave Grohl 
because he was the drummer in the band Nirvana in the early 90s and then later became the main creative force behind another band called the Foo Fighters. And um, I, I've really enjoyed it. It's really resonated with me on, in, in different ways, one of which was that we were both born the same year in 1969. He grew up in Springfield, Virginia, and he describes his life you know, as a, as a boy in the 1970s and getting to go out of the house and explore around in his neighborhood. And he describes looking for crayfish and, and, and running around and, and really just having a great time <laughs> as a kid. And that resonated with me because I, I, I was fortunate enough to grow up in uh, Smithfield, Virginia. And um, it was very similar. You know, adventures were outside. If you wanted to, to find something, if you wanted to explore, uh, you had to go outside and you and your friends would get together and, and look around and see what was there. And then there's all these brackish water marshes that when I was a kid, they were a source of fascination. And I, and I think fear too. I was, <laughs> I was probably afraid of what was lurking in those marshes as much as anything. But those times exploring, it was a major influence on why I became a biologist in the end. I grew up across the river from you, across the James River from Smithfield. Oh, really? Which, uh, yeah. which city? Williamsburg. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. You catch the ferry in Surrey. <laughs> Many times. Rode my bike to Jamestown and then across the ferry and then just explored in Smithfield. Yeah. I always really loved the ferry. So another thing uh, with, with the book, you know, Dave Grohl, he, he became part of the punk scene around D.C. that was so prominent in the 1980s. He found freedom by touring with a band and uh, quitting school, whereas uh, I, I found a similar freedom, weirdly enough, by going to school, <laughs> by going to college. Um, the rest of the book, uh, where you know he becomes a, a famous rock musician, um, is, is interesting and fascinating just from the point of view, like a fly on the wall, you get to read about him, you know, meeting his uh, musical idols and, and getting to, uh, you know, play in stadiums filled with tens of thousands of adoring fans. Um, that, that's, that's the fun part of the book, but uh, I'd say it's the early part that really resonated with me the most. It's so interesting that there would be such commonality between the biologist and the rock star. What else do you think, other, other than the fact that your paths diverged, what else do you think maybe is similar to the core of each of you? Wanting to explore... I think, you know, it, it was just there was there was some sort of dissatisfaction with with the education that we were offered or, or in early childhood, and it, it was a different time. And I think that my K twelve teachers they tried their best. I can't blame them at all. <laughs> it was all me, um, but something was missing. It just didn't work for me. But once I sort of got out of that mold and and got into a a setting where I was able to maybe learn at my own pace, learn at a different pace, figure out how I learn. It, um, I, I got on the right path, uh, fortunately. <laughs> maybe there are some parents, you know, of, of rambunctious little boys who are worried that, that they'll never amount to anything. But, but you know, it's possible. It is possible that, that they will someday become, you know, uh, uh, productive members of society. <laughs> We just all need that fire lit, right? I think so. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. You know, if you just have something that ignites a passion, something that you're willing to, to really spend your time on. You know, who knew? Who knew that it was going to be a botany class that got me excited? I was a kid who loved science fiction. And when I started learning about plants and algae, to me, I, I learned that you don't have to make something up from whole cloth to be interesting. It's right there under our feet. It's just you have to spend a little bit of time figuring it out. The things that seem commonplace are actually really weird. Um, plants are pretty weird. Algae's pretty weird. <laughs> you just have to take the time to get to know them. Right. Do you have another audiobook that you've also gone through recently that you might recommend? Sure. Um, I read uh, one called Robert E. Lee and Me by Ty Sigley. He grew up in Alexandria, Virginia. He uh, eventually rose to the rank of colonel in the army and eventually was a professor of history at West Point. 
And in the book, he, he goes through and he describes how much he idolized Robert E. Lee growing up. And the tough realization that he had that much of what he had been taught as history and that he'd been exposed to about the, the you know, Confederate General Robert E. Lee was pretty much all false. <laughs> and, you know, part of a, a narrative um, that historians now call the, the Southern Lost Cause myth. And I'll say I had never heard of this. I, I grew up, of course, in a, a, a white family with uh, pretty deep Southern roots and uh, on both sides. And I was passively and actively offered a, a reverential view of the American Civil War and those who fought on the Confederate side. And I, I'll say it, it was just sort of backdrop. It was always things that were there. And I never really took the time to understand where a lot of the sort of attitudes that I just had heard, uh, the iconography of the Confederate South and the monuments and some of the hero worship that I had, I had heard of and sort of been exposed to I, um, as a kid or as growing up, you know, where it all came from. And so reading this book, the author, uh, Ty Sigley, he, he, does, he goes through and he deconstructs his, his, his own history with learning these things. And, you know, it actually helped me, you know, connect a lot of dots. And, and that may have been you know, just an extension of my own, you know, privilege growing up white in the South, uh, because the lost cause myth has been extremely hurtful to a lot of people because it's tied to the promotion of uh, chattel slavery, um, Jim Crow laws and structural racism. So it was, it was not a light read, (laughs) I'll say, but for me, it was a very important read. What had been Ty Sigley's aha moment? How had he gone through most of his adult life happily skating through a family and an environment that had worshipped Robert E. Lee and then come around to realizing he was not what he'd been taught? Oh, as I recall, uh, he was seriously challenged by his wife. She was a, a big influence in, in telling him to step away and think about it as a historian. Um, and he does, he offers so many examples in the book of how Robert E. Lee is, is a traitor, was a traitor to his country. And this is not something you would ever hear as a, <laughs> a white Southerner growing up. Uh, it's not something that ever came up in my formal history classes. And was a slave owner, of course. Yes, right. As many of us with those, you know, Southern roots have to do, we all have to come to grip with those and just say without, with no one, in no uncertain terms, they were slave owners. They were rapists. They were selling people. They were exploiting people and taking advantage of them. They treated them like property. And and it's hard. It's a hard thing to admit. It's a hard thing to... To, to have to come to grips with. And for me, coming to grips with that and really facing it, it was something that I guess I just, I was able to push to the side and just say, you know, I'm a scientist. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about these other things. And I did, and I have, and I still do most of the time, but it doesn't help me grow as a person. It doesn't help me relate to my students. And as a professor, I think one of the greatest challenges we always face is trying to be uh, relevant and relate to our students. And if I want to relate to all my students, and, and then I need to be aware. I even do genetic testing with my students. Um, so I teach genetics, and we do the genetic testing. Uh, some of it we do ourselves. We extract, they extract their own DNA and sequence a little bit of it. You know, we do the commercial testing kits. And, and, and so everyone is having to face that. It's so great you can do this with your students. When I think about the kinds of textbooks that we had when we were young and what was omitted from them, the joy your students must feel in learning the science behind all this and the history is immense. I hope so. I don't always know. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes uh, in, in the science classes, uh, discussion, sometimes discussion isn't our strong suit, <laughs> like it might be in the other humanities. But 
um, I hope that I can plant some ideas. And, I, and I'm reminded all the time of, of those professors who, I was, I was the quiet kid in the back of the class because I was still trying to figure out how to, do, how to do school, right, when I was in college and dealing with imposter syndrome, right, because I didn't know if I really belonged there or not. And, and so my, my professors never knew the influence they had on me. And, that, and that's really why I do what I do. Uh, it had such a huge impact on me. You know, higher education had such a big impact on me, it helped me sort of find myself. And, and I know it depends on who you are. Some people find it when they join the military. Uh, some people uh, find that sense of self by becoming an auto mechanic. But for me, you know, it, it, was, it was higher education. I'm, I'm forever indebted, and it's, it's why I do what I do. It's what makes me walk into the classroom, you know, uh, every day. It's what makes me take my research students out to explore. I just hope that, uh, you know, I can pass it along, pass along that excitement, pass along that fire. Well, Bruce Cahoon, what a joy talking with you. Thanks for talking with me and with good reason. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. Bruce Cahoon is the Buchanan Endowed Chair of Biology at the University of Virginia College at Wise. You can find a complete list of today's book recommendations on our website at withgoodreasonradio.org. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Costo are interns. Special thanks this week to Jenny Taylor and Jordan Pfeiffer. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.